On today's episode of the Mocha Live podcast, we can't quite quit talking about AI. But why would we? It's such a rich topic, and it seems like I'm constantly being introduced to new ways it is worming, or has wormed, into the world of artistry. AI bias is a perfect example. AI bias obviously goes far beyond the realm of just artistry, which you'll see reflected in the conversation you're about to hear. And it goes way beyond physical identifiers, too. When we talk about AI bias, we're talking about a median, normalized way of perceiving the world that AI instinctually reflects, which is ironic because the world's diversity defies normalization. Still, it's unavoidable that our current generations of AIs are going to have bias because they're built on implicitly biased datasets and by implicitly biased people. They will inevitably skew their outputs towards whatever versions of the world are most densely represented within them or in the worldviews of their users. That shows up in ChatGPT responses, in Dolly and Midjourney outputs, everywhere. Today, I'm talking to the director and curator of the Museum of Crypto Art, the returning Shivani Mitra, and also the incredible artist, curator, and designer, Linda Dunya, about what the manifestations of this bias actually look like, what they might lead to if we don't actively seek ways to fight them, and of course, what some of those ways to fight them actually are. Linda was dealing with some internet censorship issues in her home in Senegal, so she joins us at about the 10-minute mark. And uh, to cap off our discussion, we'll talk about Linda's ongoing exhibition with Feral File in slash visible. This is one of my favorite conversations to date, and I'm so excited for you to hear it. So without further ado, the Mocha Live podcast. Good evening, everybody. It is 5.06 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. My name is Max Cohen. I'm the lead writer for the Museum of Crypto Art. This is the Mocha Live podcast. And joining us this week is the wonderful director and curator of the Museum of Crypto Art and a uh, close personal friend, Shivani Mitra. How are you, Shivani? Hello, Max. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's such a res- <laughs> yeah, that was, that was so resounding, too. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Um, I'm excited to talk to you today. Uh, we may or may not be having another special guest join us at some point. Um, yes. But for now, uh, Shivani, I want to talk to you about a topic that's been kind of top of mind for a lot of people as it relates to AI, but I want to frame it in a way that's a little bit more Catholic than that. So I think what is spoken about a lot and what um, if uh, Linda, who may or may not join us later, uh, is an expert in is bias in AI. Um, and how so many AI models, especially those that are like generally trained, whether that's DALI or um, some of the more widespread like stable diffusion and mid-journey models, um, which are taking in generalized information, um, are always going to be biased towards the people who are making it because the people who are making it have their own limited experiences, right? Um, I think a way I see that manifest visually is that like, if you use a chat GPT interface or a DALI interface, they're very, they have the Apple store aesthetic, right? They're very, very like Silicon Valley influenced. And that's just one way that that bias manifests, right? It's um, this parochialism that comes out of, you know, being limited by your experiences. So A, I'm wondering, um, what do you think about like this moment in AI as it relates to kind of how these biases are manifesting in like the outputs themselves. Are you finding yourself kind of like unenthused with AI outputs? Are you finding like certain pain points with like either the visual AI outputs or the, um, I don't know, more like texty 
AI outfits mm-hmm. that you're seeing? I think so. All of these models come from very, at least like GPT-4 comes from a mm-hmm. huge like foundation. It's a foundational model. So it's like billions of parameters and data sets that have been aggregated from places where there is data available. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the data is cleaned. Maybe it's not. And it's completely raw, like a comment section on a video. Um, those data sets are then... As I understand it, those data sets are then ranked and conditioned on their, you know, predictability or ability to be like put into a pattern by like hundreds of thousands of people in India and the Philippines. Mm-hmm. There is a whole like, there's a whole backbone to how the thing is made, which requires developers in the Western world and like a workforce and a labor force in a cheaper mm-hmm. location. So yeah. yeah. It's not like you're dealing with something that is like unable to take the consciousness of like the East and the West. It Mm -hmm. does have input from both, but the way that that things are ranked and the way that biases are kind of implicitly put in there without even people knowing they're there. It really comes down to the, the team that is making the model. Um, Mm -hmm. and choosing how to structure the data and how to look at it and and decide what's important and and what's less important. So with the visuals, you know, you're more likely to see like super sexy Japanese anime woman, Mm -hmm. right, than any other, just because that's something that really works with like an internet audience, right? You're not getting biased in like the human physical sense of like skin color and and stuff like that. You're getting biased around the fact that it's a bunch of guys on the internet using the thing. So is it more based on like who's using it or based on like who's designing it? Or is it this kind of like lockstep? Um, Well, I guess I I touched on who's designing it, right? But like the outputs we are seeing for the visual stuff in particular, Mm -hmm. a lot of that, when you go to like Civit AI or or character.ai, a lot of it is like, the user base is is uh, the reflection of what's being used. It's just a mirror of, of who's using it. Interesting. Like the visual parts. With MidJourney, my understanding is the data sets are quite comprehensive and global. And your imbued bias might be when the person who's made the LLM, that is like the text to image clip, mm-hmm. that person might be inputting, like show me a woman... Um, sitting on a bench eating a hamburger and more than likely you're going to get a woman of a certain type yeah just because language model is trained in that way so it's complicated it's like people who've designed it the people who've trained the data sets and it's the user is like mirroring them themselves so i'm gonna try and come to a point and i apologize if it's a little bit roundabout but that's okay you know when it comes to like having these kind of more specific outputs whether it yeah, you know, I'm not assigning like fault or blame here, right? Because as you know, you were saying, there's some kind of combined metric that decides on these outputs. That is users, it's the developer team. But either way, it feels to me like we're going to continue to keep pushing towards a more unified aesthetic, right? That if, like you said, yeah. the busty Japanese anime women are what the um, <laughs> are what the model puts out under certain parameters or under generalized parameters, then that's only going to become more like deeply seated 
over time, right? It's going to be like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because these things are what the model prioritizes, then it will be what the model prioritizes in the future because it will then, you know, our cultural yeah. understanding of these outputs will uh, morph themselves over, you know, the inputs to begin with. So my question is like, do you think, like, do you think we have a categorical imperative to demand variety from these outputs and demand variety at risk of having some kind of like aesthetic stagnation down the road? Mm, aesthetic stagnation down the road. So like you definitely, I agree with you that like a unified aesthetic is possible. Like if that's what people want to see, but I don't think the, I don't think the ecosystem as it is right now is a reflection of what it can be. Right now, it's super Silicon Valley. It's like super hype over like actual delivery. Like a lot of these LLMs have like serious issues. Like like those, you know, the busty Japanese woman aesthetic is a reflection of like a very, very like entry point user that can lead to a unified like desire. But if you want to actually make like generalized artificial intelligence, it has to get disunified. Like, and that's why, like, you know, with, with Linda, I'm like, yes, like people need to point out that these things are biased. If you have a unified aesthetic or a unified, like, point of view, you are no longer reflecting, like, humanity. Yeah, yeah. But I guess my point is, like, I don't want a unified aesthetic. Uh, but it seems like yeah, on, on some level, yeah. it's unavoidable if we're going to allow, like, I know we're going to keep using this example and every time I'm going to like smile cheesily, but the example of like the busty Japanese woman, that is an, like an example of this like archetypal idea of, I don't know, a certain subset of like internet users, then I, I don't know, like, won't that just again, beget itself in the process? I mean, you can't, I don't even, can't even call it a Japanese woman. It's some kind of like manga, like video game character right like it just shows you that the people who are using a lot of the like more advanced like make your own model ai stuff are like gamers or like guys who like enjoy different kinds of fantasy Mm -hmm. and like that stuff is provocative and maybe that's why they like it because it's provocative but think about like fortnite skins for instance right and uh we have linda who just joined us we're going to bring her on in just a second but like think about like fortnite skins for example they're all things that men want because it's like young men who are playing these games. So the outputs on the back end or on the like ultimate end are going to continue to mirror whoever's actually using the technology, I would think. Yes. I mean, right now I I would say AI is just, in my opinion, it is like the human brain on steroids. It's a reflection and a mirror of who we are. It is not actually like something that is transformative in the way that everyone's speaking about like a lot of AI is just going to make our lives miserable for a while. You're going to be on the phone with Delta AI for like an hour. It sounds fun. You know, like that's <laughs> like that. Like it's just better to like, I'm not trying to be negative about it. I'm just being honest that like, if we don't include more voices outside of Silicon Valley and more data sets that are pre-internet, not just in the Western world, if we don't include coders from everywhere. We're creating something that's not actually a reflection of what we are. It's a reflection of a silo yeah. and a place and a time. That's what the internet's really become horrible at. It just silos people, mm-hmm. you know? Um, okay, we should, Linda should definitely Yeah, join. let's bring Linda on. 
Linda, can you hear us okay? Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, you sound great. Yeah. Linda, joining us all the way from Senegal. Thanks so much for coming to be with us. Of course, and I'm sorry I'm late. We've been dealing with some pretty bad internet censorship since the political oh. situation got worse a couple of weeks ago. And so you never know <laughs> when you will have oh, connection God. or not. This is a low-key, friends-only space, so absolutely no worries. How are you? Where are you? Sorry, Linda, where are you calling from? I'm calling from my house, <laughs> as you can see in my kitchen. Um, wait, which city? I didn't catch the city's name. Oh, Dakar, Senegal, sorry. Oh, Dakar. okay, okay. So, Linda, we were just uh, shooting the shit very casually about, like, I don't know, I guess more generalized kinds of AI bias, right? More so how like potential silos of usership in these AIs, especially as it relates to like the image generation models may lead to a, a siloed output, right? That is going to reflect the desired outputs of like a very, very small group of people. Um, our, our very prosaic example was a uh, internet uh, age teenager, internet minded teenagers creating like busty manga women. Um, in all their outputs. And so then the model like forming around that <laughs> conception. So um, I'd love to go on. I, you know, I have a bunch of questions I'd love to ask you, but um, can you give us a couple of thoughts on, on that paradigm? Yeah. I was actually just watching um, a documentary about Instagram's impact on um, our body image. And it's funny, we don't need AI to sort of warp our perception of what we should look like. It just compounds the problem. <laughs> it makes it worse because just by ourselves, by posting photos of, you know, or by pushing content about buff men and women with large hips and et cetera, all the sort of the, all the Instagram effect body, if you want to call it that way, we were able to just do that on our own. And so for me, the ability to create those images so much like, it's so much easier than to take a photo and edit it. You can just like use prompt very well to sort of like bring more of that content online and continue to add to the problem. Um, so I, I mean, I mean, it makes me feel a little scared, but, and I guess it's the same way my parents were, or my grandparents are probably scared about, uh, you know, the internet when it came out they were like, it's going to ruin their lives. And, I'm thinking like, this is going to ruin my children's life or lives. And I don't know. So I think there's like a little, there's a part of me that's like, don't be a grandma. Like think about how we, like people can adapt to these, um, to these changes, even though they're so different from what you know. And the other part of me is like, are just some things wrong? Like, can we just say they're not good for us and like work to make them better? Mm. Yeah. I agree. I mean, um, I was telling Max before we started that accelerationism with technology, right? Like, let's keep going. Let's keep building, like make it more efficient, more automatic. Like at some point, it's like, why is is the goal to be like completely inside digital reality? Like if that's the goal, like cool. If the goal is to like be a little more compassionate, a little more organic and emergent and less like influenced, then we should actually orient to what's going on, not stop the progress, because I would agree that it's, it's just going to happen, but 
make choices yeah. rather than just making things more efficient. Like Silicon Valley is obsessed with efficiency. Yeah. And, 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 and if you can't make the choices or you don't trust yourself to make the choices or you don't want to have to figure out the frameworks to make your, the choices like let other people choose for themselves, I think, yeah. I think the, 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 what makes it really bad is that a lot of, a lot of these companies have centralized power. They're opaque about their algorithms. They're opaque about their data. They're opaque about their decision-making. They're opaque about their research on how their technology affects people. If, if I don't know, if it, and, it, and they're allowed to be. That's the crazy thing. We're, we live in a world where that's okay, even though it changes so many people's lives, like mm-hmm. materially, emotionally. Like It's just the layer, it keeps, we keep uncovering new layers. But they've had this research and probably have been sitting on it for a while. Or they know exactly where... Um, where some of this might be going. Um, so I think it's like, there's many ways to sort of like look at the problem, but one of them is the fact that we just can't hold them accountable unless we withdraw our um, participation, which to be able to do that at scale is insane. Otherwise, like how do we keep functioning, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, that feels uh, unlikely to me. Just especially with like the way people have been talking about Twitter of late and how, you know, if we all band together and get off Twitter, maybe, you know, we'll make it a more, a a less hostile place, but that doesn't seem to be happening. I'm not even doing it. It's actively hostile to my interests. I couldn't get into social media for like two weeks and I was so sad. (laughs) I was like, Oh, why is the government preventing me from getting on social media? And now here I am telling everyone how bad they are. It's great. (laughs) Linda, you mentioned before, uh, as an extension of what Shivani and I had been talking about beforehand, about like AI having these like normalizations of like certain body types, right? And I think my own understanding of AI bias is really limited, right? I, I think about it in terms of on like skin color, most um, most notably, right? But it's so much deeper than that, right? It is this tacit normalization of body type and religious sensibility and socioeconomic class and all of these things, very few of which I can um, actually comprehend. You noted in a, you know, you had this big um, tweet thread last week about bias and AI, but you noted that you put human or typed human into mid journey and the output was four white women. Um, And I actually conducted that same experiment in Dali and got mostly white people, but all of whom were dressed in like very Americanized, like businessy style, lots of cardigans, lots of blouses, all were wearing shoes. Even like the cartoons that were produced were in this vein. And that seems even more dangerous to me, not just to create like just in the homogenization of everything down into a single representative you know monolith right so i was hoping you could talk a bit about like not only how this kind of bias is like really socially degenerative but also like artistically it seems like it would be super uninteresting and just really boring yeah say that again i mean like i guess there's a certain extent to which data becomes inadequate to express humanity and like this is a great example because there's no common denominator with people there mm-hmm. there's diversity that's the best you know you you cannot sort of reduce the richness and vastness of the world into well this is the you know 
This is the alpha identity. This is the most common one. It doesn't exist. It's just not true. If we go with the most common denominator by nationality, it's definitely not uh, from a Western country. It's probably from, from another country, right? There's just, it's, there's just no way to go about this without having a conversation about racism um, and also having a conversation about geopolitics and where the center of the world is and who decides where that, you know, where that is and how that changes. So I think that's, the, that's really the dangerous thing with AI's bias is that it tries to, because it's working with data and probably a limited understanding or it's, it's being supplied with data that has a limited range of expansiveness. It's, it's just trying to do, um, to give you its best estimation of what you asked for. And when you ask for a person, you definitely don't want a best estimation, especially if that estimation is based on assumptions. Because when there's no data, you have to fill in the gap somehow, right? So for mm-hmm. example, if I, if I were to type black woman into whichever tool you use, go into specifics, right? If I just say black woman, it's probably going to give me a, like a nice looking, but even we can, <laughs> nice looking, it, it's even problematic because you, it, you typically will have, um, uh, you know, it's not very body positive. It will give you a skinny model uh, looking person, not, you know, your, not, a, not your average person. But then if we go further and, and start to use contextual prompts, like I want a black woman with box braids. And the eye is like, what is a box braid? <laughs> and it's like, this is a hairstyle that a lot of black people around the world know of. How do you not know about it? if you're trained with data from the internet, if that is the only answer, there's no way you shouldn't know this because it's a very easy common reference in the black community. It's a very simple kind of braid. Um, And then it will sort of, it won't tell you, sorry, I didn't get the contextual reference. Do you have an image to, to supply me that could inspire me? It will just give you a result, like what its best estimation or guess of, of that is. And, and, and then you see the stereotypes and, and how dangerous they can become because it has to assume, it has to make it up. And when it does, it can be very violent as a, as a black person, you kind of feel like, okay, you didn't get it, but you also gave me something that I know that I have discernment to know that that's not the right, you know, image for what I was looking for. You're not responding to the contextual prompt in the way that makes me feel satisfied. But if another person who didn't have this context were to ask you the same question, they would think of it as true because they would have no frame of reference to reject the answer or the output. Mm. And I think that becomes very, very, very dangerous for me because at least as a black person and as an artist using it, um, I can just say that's, that's wrong. That's trash. I'm mm-hmm. not going to use that. But someone who is probably looking to diversify their collection or just explore um, how other cultures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, wouldn't have the ability to discern what's real from what's not. And then that's how stereotypes become more, more and more normalized. They just become more common in our consciousness. I, I was just going to add that this, you, I think you outlined the phenomena really well in a way that makes those of us who are still in the Western context, even if we come from a different culture, understand 
that the designers of the decisions around which data to use are from here um, and, and, and making those decisions. But I was just going to point out like unconscious bias, right? So I almost went to medical school and I studied um, in like 20, 2018 um, bias of like ML and dynamic uh, data pulling in, for example, when a surgeon schedules um, their patients for the week. And what happens is the software automatically puts patients with full insurance at the most convenient time slots. So right after school ends or before school starts, this was like a children's hospital. So the system decides that the most efficient process is one which takes the most person with the most money and the most time to have the most convenient time slots, not maybe the family that doesn't have the insurance with a single mom that actually really needs the appointment that's after their work hours. It's like a very tiny thing, but it makes a huge difference for like someone's ability to get healthcare. It's like these small little, you know, gears and switches in our pieces of technology, like really change how our society works. Um, and so it's, it's just important to talk about these things as and when they come up and, and make people realize that these are points of intersection where we get to choose, you know? Um, it's hard yeah. though, because there's no market incentive around taking a step back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, again, non-participation is like never an option. Yeah. Um, you can hold, like, how do we hold them accountable? So I, I want to go off on just a brief tangent, but it's going to come back to a related point. So uh, in 1982, there was this study done by a woman named Shirley Heath uh, about um, bedtime stories in um, U.S. education, right? And basically the study was taking uh, stock of how people in different uh, socioeconomic areas within the U.S., differently told bedtime stories to their kids, whether they did or not, whether they did this classic kind of like call and response mechanism where like you have a bedtime story and it's open. You say, what's that? It's a duck. Very good. It's a duck, which sounds silly. It's, you know, that's not a, a generalized way of telling kids bedtime stories, but it proliferated for whatever reason in more upper class, like white communities in the U S and again, the downstream effects of that are like, we'll come to first grade and you have a contingent of wealthier white kids who are far more accustomed already, like evolutionarily, to the kind of raise your hand, call and response, question and answer that is popular in you know American schools. And the outcomes that come out of that are so intensified because those kids who didn't have that kind of like um, call and response bedtime story upbringing they're now put in remedial classes. They have all these self-fulfilling prophecies that they're going to be saddled with. They're basically playing catch up for the rest of their economic, or I'm sorry, educational careers. Um, it's, it's really intense, right? And it starts with this unanalyzed input, right? That is just very automatic for a lot of people, but then it has these really severe downstream effects. And we were talking before about these generalized AIs taking in these data sets and then putting out these very regressive outputs. If you have a generalized AI that's working on all the information on the internet, right? Well, that's going to skew towards a cultures that have had the internet for longer cultures that are, have been like internet adept for longer. Um, you know, I know like I'm thinking of India, for example, where there's not from what I understand, like widespread internet access and in a lot of the populaces within like Indian culture. So they might have 
a much larger actual population than the US, but as it relates to these AIs and the data sets that they have, it's minuscule compared to you know, the many years and like um, the, the many years of usage of the internet that like these AIs would then be pulling from. Um, I think both of you came to the same uh, point at the end of your uh, last points, which was like, how do we fix this? And I'm wondering if there is, uh, Linda, in any, is the only way forward, like point by point, moment by moment, analysis, reflection, and like pointed comprehensive change? I I don't know. I mean, this is the thing. Like, I feel that as an artist, my, the only scope of like, solution that I can come up with is in the realm of imagination and speculation. I worked, I start I started my career in design and I worked as a visual designer and an interaction designer and being in tech and sort of seeing I don't know, I didn't I didn't enjoy my contribution to the world when I was a designer because I felt that um, the very industry of how we come up with tools that can change people's lives doesn't actually like consider people's lives in the making of them right we're we're chasing progress we're chasing uh efficiency we're chasing beauty uh, you know and 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 we're sort of putting one foot in front of the other in the design industry not necessarily thinking about the repercussion it might have it's just like critical thinking in in and research and like sort of analysis of like what might be the potential effects, even using speculative fiction to think about that is not something we do regularly. You have a few objectives, you have a bunch of clients and they really want it to get done and you just go on and move on to the next thing. And at some point I was working on financial inclusion tools for women in um, Northern Kenya, which is a, a sort of a rural area. And the very assumptions we went into that area with to do research which is completely off base like they're they were based on our idea of the world and the fact that women in rural areas are not empowered and if you don't have a phone you're not empowered it's just like a bunch of assumptions that just led to other assumptions that when you're in the field actually speaking to women you realize none of this is right and you're going to design a tool around that that's potentially going to negatively impact how they live because you didn't understand them in the first place so i didn't i didn't like my job as a designer so, but i think as an artist i have the flexibility and the freedom to just sort of explore these topics and not sort of force my like i guess not like put pressure on myself to come up with a solution to the problem i think i like to just imagine different alternatives of how we live and perhaps someone smarter who's actually building something would come up with 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 the solution so so i hesitate to say that i have an idea of how on how to fix it i don't even have a remote like i don't think i even remotely understand the problem or the extent of the problem right i can only sort of see it and experience it as an artist in the context of art but that that being said i think um it's important for people to just be vocal about when something doesn't accurately represent them when or about the issues that they see because there's potentially a way through the internet to sort of see all these use cases and and see all the sort of minute um uh i guess inconsistencies and distortions and assumptions and stereotypes that people are encountering 
and that might lead to something bigger which is why I did this exhibition because I just wanted people to like see at least like a range of problems that they may not may not have encountered before and perhaps when people are aware of these they're they have the language to look for them and to mm. identify them when it happens to them because they might not even have the language to discern it right so I guess that's the scope of what I think of how I think and I deal with this problem and another thing is that I'm still I'm, I'm lucky because I kind of live in a different reality than a lot of my friends in the web3 space um, are in so I'm not I'm not based in the US or anywhere in Europe um, pe techn technology penetration is pretty high in Senegal like actually really really high it's above 90 percent which means almost everyone has a phone. Um, but at the same time, people are not using um, technology in the way it's, let's say, my friends in the US were using it. They have a different relationship with it. And I think that's worth studying. It's worth looking at places outside of the sort of Western and Eurocentric sphere about how they're relating to technology and how it's affecting them and how they're repurposing them or even sort of misusing it to fit better what their, you know, what their actual goals are with it. So I'm, that's something I've been really, really curious about. This reminds me of um, when Facebook was using the same methods for censoring content in the US, or I'm sorry, in like Myanmar that they were in the US and they were unintentionally like contributing to like genocidal activity um, of like Rohingya Muslims because they were not accounting for the cultural differences um, in technology, technology use, who was using it for what reasons. Mm. Um, and it was just, it seems to me like it didn't know what questions to ask because they weren't concerned with asking questions in the first place and knowing what questions to ask is so, seems so complex. Shivani, I'm wondering yeah. like, in, in, in your opinion, do you think we could ever reach a point where like AI, an AI model itself could recognize its own biases, ask itself the questions and address them? Oh man. Um, well, I, I totally agree with Linda and also Linda, I think you are, you are the solution in many ways. Pe people who choose to speak up and people who choose to use their passions towards something better than just themselves, you know? Yeah, I mean, thank you. I would agree that like civilizations, right? Like, for example, the Indus Valley civilization in my context, that civilization like lives way before the idea of India as a country and will probably live way after that, that geographical location. So if you're not including data points that exist from like pre-internet time, I think, you know, you're, you're considering humanity as a mirror of what it is doing online and not what it has done. So in order for an, an AI to recognize its own biases, I think you're talking about something that can look at multiple LLMs and coherently look at each LLM critically, right? And then on top of that, you are also speaking about much more heterogeneous like data sets, which the reality is, is that the Western world has like 
more resources and more time and more energy to put towards something like research. And so you can't fault like the realities of the world, but you can try and steer, you know, into a direction that is less Eurocentric and Western centric simply for the benefit of everyone to have a good quality like AGI, if it will ever happen. So I would be interested in like that happening only if like someone at one of these big fang companies is like, hey, our AI right now is great, but it's really not that great. Actually, it has a lot of lot of like serious issues with it. Maybe our counterparts in like Africa or China or India, like obviously broadening entire countries, like billions of people into like one word. But like maybe there are people there who can fill in and teach us and, and let us make something that is better for everyone. So that's the only way you're going to have an AI that recognizes its own biases. Um, right now, it's just a reflection of, of who we are, which is a humanity that does not recognize its own biases. You can't fault it for being a reflection yeah. of who we are. Yeah, exactly. You can't. It's, yeah. <laughs> it, it works as intended. Yeah. <laughs> it really does a good job at what it's supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of what you said resonates with me because one of the biggest questions I've had is like, why can't I just contribute my own data if you're not gonna? Yeah, if you're not gonna do it, I will give you data. I will willingly give you stuff, but they'll go outside and take pictures of shit and give it to you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. Because I mean, so I, I did this project where. Um, I was looking at, I was just really curious about like, you know, what's going to happen to endangered flower species in the West, in the sort of Sahel region, which is just a belt right below the, the Sahara Desert. And the desert is encroaching. And so I was, my hunch was a lot of them have probably disappeared already. A lot of flowers that my grandmother grew up with, I probably will never see. And it's going to keep going that way. And I was curious about like, I would love to see them, at least the ones that were documented. And then I was, I, so I, I did, um, I did a little bit of research. I got a, a list of 120 different species of flowers and I set out to do my research on the internet and guess what? They don't exist. <laughs> they're literally gone from the memory of the world. They're, they're no longer visible in nature, but they also were never documented. Um, and by that, I mean, there's no picture or the best you'll find is in like national archives, they have these herbariums and um, they have the actual plant either um, dried up or printed while it was still sort of, while it was dried up like a, a, a few years ago and reprinted. And so, and, and they'll have like a little, so you see the dry plant and then you'll have on the side a little color bar. The same thing is you have when you have um, when you're printing a test print, you have this like color bar that indicates if your if your color setting is right. So they use that to indicate the color of different types of the plants. So that's the best memory we have of, of those plants. Hmm. And and when I think about that, and the the sort of the just I was filled with so much sadness. Like there's just so much from my world that I will never see, and that no one will ever see. You'll find the name, the scientific classification, or whatever but you'll never actually see this flower. Um, and there's no way to revive it using GANs either because there's just no photos of it. Um, and so I 
what I did is I took photos of all the flowers that were still around uh, for this project. And I went and sort of reimagined. Mm -hmm. I tried to imagine what those flowers might have looked like using the herbarium's notes. Um, and obviously with AI, I got, there's a lot of distortion, but it was, there's something poetic about the fact that it's just, I will, you can just never get a good fidelity on, on what's completely gone. The reason why I mentioned this is because this is going to happen to people and cultures, <laughs> right? If we, if nothing changes, entire ways of life that are going to be completely gone from our memory of the world that a future generation or an alien race will just not know some things, some people, some places, some ways of doing things or thinking in certain ways existed. It, it would just all be gone. And that to me is just devastating, right? Yeah, I agree. I, I go back and forth though, to be honest, because I'm like, okay, if we're going to move forward and, and this is going to happen, like let's say... Like in five years, no one on earth is going to know how to make a pencil, right? And some of us are going to be like, oh my God, no one knows how to make a pencil. And some of us are going to be like, okay, we don't need a pencil anymore. I can make a pencil. You know, <laughs> but you know, what I, you know what I mean? Like there's going to be like these two camps of like people being like, okay, I guess we've moved on. Like this is where we're moving. And people are going to be like, no, this is important. It represents something. It represents our identity represents our genesis like and i think that contrast is so necessary and healthy well that's not it's yeah. so natural right yeah. it's like you know the classic like progressive conservative dichotomy at its like you know essential core in every i feel like social movement worldwide there is some side that is pushing to not forget the past necessarily yeah. but to evolve into a new paradigm and there's always some and obviously both of these sides can be bastardized you know, turned into horrific funhouse mirror versions of themselves. Then there's the other side that's like holding tight to the past, perhaps too tight, but like trying to drag it along. But also maybe that's a huge oversimplification. Yeah. But what you were saying, Linda, about like a specific like flower or like culture or language, like that is an act of preservation, not like a tool that we no longer need, you know? So that yeah. I, I agree with you. And I, I wish um, there was more like money and energy put towards like study of the past for its beauty and its lessons and not just for the fact that like some people like to do this and it makes them happy. Like, no, <laughs> yeah. it is like a very important part of like who we are. Yeah, that's a cultural thing. Yeah. And I think it's, it's also not just preser preservation is not just for the sake of preservation. Yeah, Sometimes totally. it's really smart, right? Because you, you run into, you, you sort of, especially when we're talking about sort of moving towards like being a homogenous, globalized world where everyone's life looks the mm -hmm. same. Mm -hmm. The issue with that is that what if it doesn't work? And at some point we realize yeah. it doesn't work. Hashtag capitalism. <laughs> what are the alternatives? And we just yeah. haven't documented the past extensively enough to even imagine something better or different. Um, by I think by leaving so much of, and I just I don't want to say the the past. I, I think it's just by by sort of prioritizing the current narrative of how life should be and what progress looks like. I think the issue is that we're sort of um, we're sort of just 
removing our ability to, to be smarter when that doesn't work, right? We're removing all of these sort of different ways of thinking, which might come mm-hmm. in handy when something breaks. We're like, oh, let's return to this thing that used to happen in, you know, 500 BC in, in, in I don't know, in, in Ethiopia. They figured out this way of growing crops that resisted drought. Maybe we should try that because, yeah, yeah. look, climate change is happening and we, we don't know how to grow grow food anymore i think i, I don't know i think it's just it's it, to me it's it's really um and, and and i'm not even sort of romanticizing the past right because there's so much of my past that's been completely erased right i grew up in senegal mm-hmm. uh which was under colonial rule for much longer than like you know the nearest ancestor that i know <laughs> so um there's so much of my cultures that i will just never ever know anything about um, and so to me, it's about, well, we, let's learn from history a little bit and not try to do the same thing. And if there's a way today that you can capture sound and images using your phone and gather data in a very sort of bottom up, using a very bottom yeah. up approach and, and we're not discriminating anyway, cause we're, we're saying it's just images on the internet and half the images on the internet are not the, you know, the greatest. They're not taken by professors or researchers. They're just people uploading stuff. And so to me, it's like, there's a, there's a solution right there. People have cell phones in their hands and we could just use a different way of collecting data that involves people more, especially the people we're not, we don't know much about. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to hear like data collection positive as a net positive or even like a necessity as opposed to something that's like inherently evil. But I guess that comes back to the like choice, right? When individuals are empowered to be data collection agents, as opposed to, you know, forced to automatically mm-hmm. be so. So it's a huge paradigm shift. Um, Linda, I'd yeah. love to, uh, to, to switch gears and talk about uh, in slash visible, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. This is a exhibition uh, you put on with feral file featuring black AI artists who you called quote, defiantly visible, defiantly visible. And a, like, before I get into, I I have a couple other questions, but um, why did you choose like these 10 artists? Like what was the underlying motivation? Or perhaps you could just give us some more insight on what defiantly visible means. Yeah, for sure. So I think um, maybe 60% of the artists, um, we're already experimenting with AI. Some of them hadn't yet, but I was really curious about what their experience might be. So I really wanted to sort of get um, a group that represented the spectrum of like um, the extensiveness um, that AI sort of, you know, intervenes in their practice. So there's people who are like, there's me, I train GANs, I've been doing it for a long time. Um, and then there's like Ada, who's the photographer who's never tried AI before. Um, And sort of there's everyone in between, right? And so I I thought it was a really interesting experiment to see how much, for first of all, how different and similar our experiences would be um, when it comes to encountering sort of these biases and how we deal with it. And, and, And what happens is that you see different approaches to first of all, everybody does encounter these biases. We all felt very much like you have to work a little bit harder to get to a place that feels aesthetically or conceptually pleasing. Um, 
but I think the way every artist sort of navigated that was really, really interesting to, to see. So you have artists like Ja, who he exploits the, the distortions, right? Because he's working with these sort of uh, surreal, um, mythical-like figures. He's allowed to sort of just be humanoid and just play within the lines of that, right? So he's using the distortions. He's, he's, um, he's sort of trying um, to infuse some references, some cultural references. Like, for example, you see like the Egyptian headdress, um, you'll see a lot of sort of references to both like historical um, uh, black context or or current and contemporary black context, and so if he's doing this like like imagining these faces that kind of feel like um, watching a mask maker, right? Like carve carve out a face out of out of wood, right? There's um, it's not a human; uh, it's something like it. Um, and I think the distortions of AI actually help with that because they, they give you a little bit of that without you necessarily sort of um, prompting it yourself, right? So you're, mm. he's exploiting them and, it, and the result is it's just staggering. And then you have um, both Serwa's work and Mene's work, which is um, stunning. These, the portraits are beautiful. The, 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 the bodies... Um, are the, the female form is sort of you know stunning just so you can you look at it it feels beautiful because like this is a beautiful woman and then you kind of look closely and you're like but there's something off and i'm not sure what it is and it's it's you'll find that in the hair and in small details around the face very small details around the face where the lip doesn't seem to sort of completely end and the other one begins but mostly the hair in sarah's piece the hair is the same type of fabric as what you'll find in the clothing right and so sort of like was this intentional did it interpret it as like this is my best estimation of what air, hair black hair should look like how did this happen so it, it raises a very interesting question and with Minet's work where it's actually called blonde braid study um you you sort of see that she's trying to get it to understand the contextual reference of a hairstyle and it's just trying its best, but it's just not cutting it. And so you have this heavily straightened hair coming out of what seems to be braids. Um, and it's it just, it's not believable. It's, 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 the, it's the one sort of, uh, the few, in, in, in some cases with post-photography with AI, you have to really, really look hard to find that this was made by AI. And this is typically when it's like representing a, a white presenting body uh, in a Western context, right? But if you if you take it out of that context, it's not breadcrumbs. It's right there, just like right there in your face that you can see either a stereotype or a distortion, and you know it's been made by AI. So I think that there was just so many different to kind of how these artists navigate not being understood, and um, that I think was worth really celebrating and showing that the extent. Um, the extent to which we have to sort of use um, our creativity to work around it because choosing to work, we could also just say, we don't, we're black. We don't want to use this tool because it doesn't seem to work for us. But I think there's something really powerful in continuing to participate um, and continuing to make work that 
is not just necess- it's not just like aesthetically appealing, but it's actually um, it's political, right? It's it's in mm-hmm. its in its conceptually, it is about saying this doesn't work, um, and mm-hmm. here's why. And I think there was something really really powerful about making that statement. So I, I have one more specific question, and then um, we can we can break for the night. Um, but as it relates to the works in this exhibition, right? Confetti by, um, and please correct me if I'm mispronouncing the names of these artists, but uh, Nigelia is so abstract that in any given edition of the work, the human body is so fractured as to be like unidentifiable. And then there was um, Ryan L. Niles' Cities and Spaceships, which has no people at all. And then there was your Shea Joe, which takes out facial features and like skin color altogether, replaces it with like this kind of yellowed construction paper hue. And I think that's so interesting that in this exhibition, which I think to a lot of people might have the, uh, they might come in expecting like um, black skin, black bodies to be like universally kind of centralized in at least 30% of the works there, there's some challenge to that. Uh, And I found that just so interesting, not only in your specific work as an artist, but also in your curation of this exhibition. So I was hoping you could talk more about that. Yeah, of course. yes, fantastic question. And there's also Ashe by Afroscope, which is also just like, is it black bodies? Is it black faces? What is that? Um, it kind of just dissolves into these like um, abstract shapes. But I, so I guess I'll start with 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 Shejo, my my collection, um, because I decided to just remove the face entirely. Uh, it's the it's the thing that was generated with AI, <laughs> but I just I just wanted to make a statement that this is not a real face because it's because I don't think it the the, the, the sort of the information and the design of the algorithm to create this face actually meant to create the space um, or was designed to do it well. Um, so I kind of take it out ent- completely because. Um, I just wanted to make the statement that it's not what's important here, right? So I was, in a lot of my work with AI is, is, is kind of about staying faithful to my understanding of things, right? Or my memory of them. In this very case, um, it's, it's set in my grandmother's um, grocery store, which I spent a lot of time as a kid. Um, and, and when I try to remember it, the images are very hazy, I, don't, I can't really make out the faces of the customers. I can't really make out the exact products that the shop used to sell. There's a lot that's missing from my memory. And I think AI was perfect there because it, when I, through prompt, basically, I was able to get results that were just like my memory, completely, <laughs> just, um, completely lacking any definition or not even trying to understand the context really well. It was just, it was very, it was very faithful to how I remember the place. And, and that's what I wanted to channel. But the problem, one of the problems I encountered is that it, it tried really hard to correct with the faces. The faces were like these like editorial model, like people, which are not the people who came to my grandmother's store. So I just took out their face. Um, and I think Nigeria um, uh, does something similar. And also Zoe, um, by applying a treatment that almost like 
takes you a couple steps from the body. It's there, but is it, right? And is it complete? Is it accurate? Is it faithful? I'm trying to see it, but I can't, which is sort of mirrors our experience with trying to sort of um, get these outputs. Very interesting for them to have gone into that direction. Um, And then um, Ashe, which sort of, uses i think it's the only collection in the it's the only series in the in the exhibition that actually uses again again and um it's it's sort of this calligraphic technique of lines that do not break um and and you have an abstract um interpretation of of a face and this is based on a concept that's in in very prominent in in West Africa, which is the concept of Lache. So what Afroscope did is he actually hand drew something like 2,000 or 3,000 drawings of these figures completely by hand. It's actually insane. Whoa. He's a robot. And then fed them into the GAN. And every once in a while, the GAN will try really hard to make it look like a mask. It's like, you can tell there's a lot of masks in the training data. Um, so, so the, again, even with a GAN, right, because you're using style GAN 2 or 3, right, so you're, you're still using something that's um, even training or retraining, which is the more accurate term for what we do with GAN, even when you're retraining with GANs, you're starting, you're not starting with a neutral algorithm, right? And, and the last one is Ryan's work, which actually has no people, which is one of, to me, one of the most thought-provoking ones, because she was trying to so, so she's coming from an architectural background and she's trying to sort of conjure up an image of what Sudan might be like in the future. And this, by the way, any kind of future, future ring, I guess, with AI, when you're not doing it in the, in the Western, um, in, in the sort of a Eurocentric framework, it just, it doesn't work at all. If you try typing Dakar in 2020, I don't know, in, in 2050, um, and, and maybe add some things of like, oh, there's flying cars or there's like, uh, you know, I don't know, like uh, tubes in the ocean that connect, that connected to like different, that connect cities to each other. Whatever prompt you will add, it will break at the word Dakar because it cannot imagine the city enough it does not know the city enough to mm. like to to project it in the future and you can take the exact same prompt and substitute it with a european city and it will just like blow your mind mm-hmm. so any kind of futuristic like um exercise or speculative exercise with with ai when you're outside of of a context it knows it's just like it, it's really sad. And, and I think that's what Rayan does, right? Because she's looking at Sudan in the future. And it really looks like Sudan like 50 years ago, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there's sort of a spaceship, but why does it kind of look like um, it could have been a ship? It's just like, oh, there may be, you know, ships on the eastern coast of Africa. Let's just turn that into a flying ship. And, and that's, that's our best guess of like, what the future of Sudan might look like. So it, it so I think that's that that piece of work is brilliant for me because it, it's just uh the perfect depiction of what you absolutely cannot do today um with um 
with the with with the lack of understanding that you're and the and the level of bias that you're dealing with, um, you can fight to get a an accurate portrait. You can really keep prompting and editing and editing to get something good, but anything that projects a context that AI doesn't know into the future is, is like it actually just breaks there, and it's it's really sad. Hmm. Well, it's uh, it's a brilliant curation uh, that's in slash visible. Yeah. Uh, collaboration with feral file um yeah we're big fans and this has been a brilliant conversation i've i've so enjoyed talking to you two about all all of this very very complex stuff that you both have such a wonderful way of putting into uh uncomprehensible terms for uh someone like me any last words linda shivani before we get out of here yeah i was surprised with how this this exhibition was received by the community i I was, I'm always scared to do things that are, seem too political for Web3 because Web3 doesn't seem to like political things. Um, but I think this is just such a, such an important topic because it doesn't affect just black people. It affects all people, everyone outside of the, the Western context, in, even people in the Western context. I think holding account, like AI accountable is not just something black people or people of color want. Everyone wants to hold AI accountable. They want to know what data is being trained on. They want more transparency about what decisions are made with that data, where that data is sourced. And some people might want to contribute their own data to correct for some of the imbalances, right? No one has an idea of what the internet looks like. No one has a full picture of all of the different things that we forgot to add, things that we didn't add correctly or things we should remove, like... And without that type of transparency, it's really hard to to change the status quo. And I think that everyone cares about that, not just Black people. No, I'm so happy to meet you, Linda. You're so brilliant. So, so brilliant. Yeah. I think your collection you. and your creation <laughs> is so important. I started looking and understanding like biases and data like a long time ago, and I, I never expected to interrogate it from an artistic standpoint never expected to go into like crypto art and digital art but in the last couple years now you know i can definitely say from being on the inside of it that people are on paper describe the ways that things are inclusive and the way that things are going to redistribute but the actions and the execution behind it is just not there so the work that you're doing and and I will be behind you 110% no matter how provocative and, and on the nail you want to get. So, <laughs> that's Thank awesome. you. I really appreciate that. That's on the record now. So, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I will hold you accountable to it. Look, Shivani, help me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think the way you're speaking about it is right. Because to be honest, for me, when I get the like, what's it like to be a woman of color in web three? I'm like, you just put me in a circle and put me on the side. Like we're not having a conversation. <laughs> so I'm so happy. I'm so glad with the way that you talk about it because I think it works. And I think it gets people to realize that it's important for everyone. Well, Shivani, Linda, this has been a, a, a really wonderful uh, time to spend with you. Thanks so much for, uh, for being here, both of you. This has been another episode of the Mocha Live podcast. We'll be back next week. Uh, same bad time, same bad channel. Please join us then. Um, otherwise, have a lovely rest of your day. Thanks so much for being here. Bye.